When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Check this out. This is the Rip and Read featuring Curtis Lewa. Walking about now to the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC and Curtis Lewa. This is the Rip and Read. Would you like to ride in my How quickly we forget how great the fifth dimension was, especially Marilyn McCool. Boy, when I first saw Marilyn McCool on that stage, Lou, I was like, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, which eventually led me uh, into my first uh, marriage, uh, Jungle Fever with uh, Corinne. Uh, She discovered Jacoby, I discovered Myers after a year, and we went our separate ways, but I will never forget that group on the stage performing hit after hit after hit. Incredible. And actually, this one, which is so synonymous to what we're talking over now, going over like a red balloon, the red Chinese balloon over a uh, SAC Air Force Command Center in North Dakota, amongst all the cornfields. And everybody's going absolutely out of their minds. Although I don't think this is the balloon uh, that uh, Marilyn McCool was talking about. Or even the Fifth Dimension leader, Billy Davis Jr. You know, the most amazing thing about the Fifth Dimension is that Billy Davis Jr. married Marilyn McCool. And they've had a marriage that has lasted 50 years in the entertainment industry. And people say... It was like love at first sight. Incredible, incredible story. But right now, when we speak about music, Lou, the hawk is talking. The hawk is talking. That's right. I had to give you a little hint there. Speaking of music, this was taught to me by my father, Chester Merchant Seaman, 54 years, came out of the south side of Chicago when there was not global warming and climate change, when you would have a winter and those cold winds would cut you in half off of Lake Michigan, where it felt uh, it was like 40 degrees below zero. There was no wind chill factor back then. It was cold. My dad said, you know, along the south shore there, along Lake Michigan, there were all the black jazz clubs. And a lot of the black uh, jazz musicians would come in, trumpet players, horn players, uh, in fact, Louis Armstrong was from North Corona, Queens. And he would tell the audience, hey, you got to give me uh, at least about five to ten minutes because my lips are frozen. The hawk is talking out there. And everybody understood. Okay, give the band about 
five, ten minutes. Maybe they got to knock back a little Jameson, a little bourbon, whatever, because it was so frozen they couldn't play their horns. So that's where the term the hawk is talking is coming from. And let me tell you, before we talk about the uh, uh, red balloon over North Dakota, I got to tell you, it is so cold out there. The temperatures are dropping so rapidly that if you're aware of any animals outside, please try to give them sanctuary, feral cats. Uh, I'm going to take care of the pigeons who are waiting me to feed them right after the program uh, finish when I pass it off to Lieutenant Colonel uh, Greg Kelly at the 1 o'clock hour. But it is, uh, it's detrimental to humans, and it's detrimental especially to animals who are forced to live outdoors or choose to live outdoors like feral cats. So just a warning. And also, remember, you don't want the curse of Sid Rosenberg upon you. Remember that Friday right before the Christmas holiday, his son was in for the very first time. I came in at 7.05, and I warned him. He wouldn't listen, and his son warned him. You know, I said, you got to get the pump for the basement. You got to get a buzzsaw in case any trees come down. It's going to be inclement weather. The temperatures are expected to drop 50 degrees within the first one or two hours, and you need to get a generator, and he ignored all of that. And guess what happened? His pipes burst. And now he's like living with the illegal aliens at some no-tell motel Holiday Inn Express somewhere in midtown Manhattan, okay? Word to the wise, make sure you either turn that water off or if you're going to be in uh, in your place of business or your uh, living establishment, turn the water on and let it run through the pipes. Anyway, let's continue on this story that is really a non-story. This Chinese spy balloon has prompted uh, our president... Joe Biden stumbling and bumbling his way to the podium to declare that the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, will not go ahead with his plans to go meet with Emperor Xi, who's on second, I don't know who's on third, why don't you just belly flop into home? Who the hell knows with those Chinese, Chinese uh, red Chinese dictators and totalitarian emperors there? The point being is, this is a balloon, a balloon. What the hell are we getting all uh, bent out of shape? Oh, spying on us with a balloon. Let me tell you something. You got 10 trillion satellites up there surrounding uh, Mother Earth. Uh, mostly United States, European countries, India, Israel, Red China, Russia. They're just about ready to crash into one another. You got Google Earth. You got drones. You have U-2 flights. And you're worried about a freaking balloon? Now, it doesn't mean you believe the Red Chinese when they've been caught and they say, oh, no, 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 you got to understand this is just this is just a civilian airship, a.k.a. a Zeppelin. We'll get into that momentarily. Remember 1936 at the Lakehurst Air Force Naval Base when that Zeppelin from Adolf Hitler exploded into a million pieces as the hydrogen mixed with the oxygen and there was a spark and then boom. Embarrassment to Adolf Hitler. We'll get to that because I'm digressing. But the Red Chinese are now claiming that the balloon that we're all focused on as if it was a new moon up there is, in fact, a civilian airship blown off course that was just doing weather research. Well, we don't believe that. But then again, you don't need a balloon to do your spying. When were balloons first used to do spying? Actually, during the French Revolution. The French were under siege by the peasants. And eventually the Paris Commune and Robespierre off with their heads. As Marie Antoinette was saying, let them eat cake. 
and all of the princes and the so-called royalty were in escape mode. The French military, for the very first time, put up balloons, what they call observation balloons, reconnaissance mission balloons in 1794, to see what everyone was doing when they say, to the barricades, to the barricades, just like out of Les Miserables. That was first. Then for the United States, the first balloons that went up were during the Civil War. Both the Union and the Confederates had multiple balloons, which they put up into the air with human beings in a little basket, and the whole intent was they were to go up there with the binoculars and they were to see where were the troop movements, where were the artillery uh, batteries placed, and then come back down and report it to headquarters. And then naturally it got even more intense during World War One, where there were dozens and dozens of reconnaissance missions on both sides between the Germans, the French, the English, as they would watch enemy movements, because remember, it was trench warfare. So you would you would move maybe a foot, a hundred people who had died in order to get that foot. You would go back up in a balloon and you would try to tactically figure out how much, how many uh, uh, centimeters did you actually gain and how many people died in the process. So balloons were very important, but the Germans figured out that they had lost oh, a number, a number of those uh, balloons uh, in battle. Because all of a sudden, uh, the uh, sharpshooters would go up trying to get the Red Baron. And if they couldn't get a Red Baron up there, one of the German uh, aces, they would go for one of the German balloons. And vice versa, the Red Baron would go after an English or French balloon if, in fact, they couldn't find uh, any uh, fighters up there high in the sky. And then it really developed as Adolf Hitler decided to make that one of the marks of German superiority to turn those uh, dirigibles, those balloons, into uh, Zeppelins. The very reason that you have on the cover of uh, Led Zeppelin, that that dirigible, I guess you could almost say it's like, what can we call it? The Hindenburg. To me, it reminds me of a picture of the Hindenburg. And the Hindenburg would travel back and forth across the Atlantic Ocean. It was considered the futures here and now of airships, of air flight. They would have as many as 40 passengers on board, but it was also used for military reconnaissance. You could check on naval fleets. You could do a number of things. You would have a military use. You would have a civilian use. Unfortunately, the balloons had hydrogen in it, not helium. And so the moment they came into contact with any kind of a spark, any kind of fire whatsoever, they would explode, as we have seen over and over from the footage at the Lake Curse Naval Field Right there in Manchester Township in uh, New Jersey in 1937, it went pop. And then, of course, I I think probably, and I'm going to conflate the two because we're talking about the Super Bowl coming up uh, in Phoenix in another weekend. I'll never forget the many advertisements in the subway system when they used to have a lot of advertisements for upcoming movies uh, you might remember 1977, Black Sunday. So what the hell is this? Because you saw the picture of this dirigible hanging over what looked like uh, a stadium. And you found out that it had to do with the Super Bowl. And then, in fact, the Black September PLO terrorist group, according to the movie, was going to blow up the Goodyear blimp over the Super Bowl and cause massive casualties and strike a blow at the West. And the only one I can remember from uh, that movie, I think, was Bruce Stern. I don't remember anybody else. It was not a memorable movie. Uh, 
And I wouldn't suggest you go back even in advance to the Super Bowl and you watch it. It just it didn't live up to the hype. It did not live up to the hype. But the whole concept was you have the Super Bowl and you already have the Goodyear blimp flying overhead as it always does. I think there are two of them still in existence out of Akron, Ohio. And they fly around and they photograph from there. They video from there. It gives you sort of an aerial view of what's going on, although now you don't really need it. You've got drones and drones suffice. In fact, they actually do a better job. But, hey, for the purpose uh, of old uh, history of the Super Bowls, you're going to have the Goodyear blimp up there. Just remember that movie, Black Sunday. Anyway, don't believe the hype. This is not, I repeat, this is not a threat to United States security. You you, you want to shoot the balloon down, go, go up in a crop duster, get a double-barrel Winchester shotgun, shoot it down, have some fun. But I'll never, I'll never trust this government or any government. When I was a kid, six years old, and I'm watching on TV, our president at the time, it was right before the changeover to JFK, in the very close election that he stole from Richard Nixon. I'll never forget Dwight Eisenhower, our president, addressing the nation, and he goes, we did not have a U-2 flight over the Soviet Union. We do not have any reconnaissance flights over the Soviet Union. That is Soviet propaganda. I accepted it. And then the very next day, there's Nikita Khrushchev. And who does he have side by side with him? Francis Gary Powers. I said, that looks like one of our guys. It was. It was our U.S. Air Force pilot. And he was in a U-2 reconnaissance flight doing aerial uh, uh, photographic reconnaissance deep inside of Soviet territory in the Ural Mountains. So it co- taught us clearly back in 1960, there are so many different ways that you can do surveillance. And nowadays you have 100 more ways to do it. You can do it with drones. You could do it with U-2 flights, which still take place on a regular basis. And you can do it with the satellite technology. Elon Musk has proven that even private investors can observe what's going on on Mother Earth from high in the sky with stat- satellites. So let's not go uh, hell-bent in aiding the military-industrial complex to say, oh, we're going to war against Red China so that they all get geared up, so that they spend our tax di- dollars over a stupid balloon over North Dakota that's not going to teach the Red Chinese anything about our military prowess. To the Bernard McGurk Studios of 77 WABC and Curtis Lewa. Curtis doesn't know about you, but he rips and reads. This is the Rip and Read. classic by the pedophile on a pedestal, Gary Glitter. What do I think of arenas around the country that used to play this before they realized this guy is a danger to children, period? No. I think of Joaquin Phoenix in the Joker movie, 2019. I know many of you say, oh, Heath Ledger was better as the Joker. No, no, no. Joaquin Phoenix in that subway 
And they had to be politically correct. They had to have, what, four hippie, uh, not hippies, but uh, hipster millennials attacking him. And then all of a sudden he did a Bernard Getz on them and fled. You remember that. It couldn't be black. It couldn't be Hispanic. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, what a great movie. And they played this song in Joker, Joaquin Phoenix. And no matter how hard they try to resurrect this pedophile on a pedestal, they'll never do that because we will never forget. We will never forget. But Hollyweird will because how many other pedophiles on a pedestal are behind those closed doors? Remember for all those years, Michael Jackson. <laughs> Pedophile on a pedestal extraordinaire. And then uh, we can go right on down through the laundry list. But let's talk about Gary Glitter because he's out and about. The British authorities have released him from prison after a thread of different crimes committed against children all over the world. And you say to yourself, are they mad? Are they out of their minds? Remember, he had attacked young girls all under the age of 13 at the height of his fame in the 1970s, sexually assaulted them, went to prison, and then went to pedophile heaven. You know what that is for North Americans and Europeans? Cambodia, where anything goes. And even in Cambodia, he was expelled because they said even he as a pedophile was over the top. And then he went to Vietnam, and uh, he served three years in jail there and was ordered to register as a sex offender upon returning home to England because he raped another child in Vietnam. So look at this predicate offender in the U.K., in Cambodia. Imagine you're a pedophile and they kick you out of Cambodia. They almost never do that. In fact, they want the pedophile's money. They encourage pedophiles to come to Cambodia and then Vietnam himself. And now he has been uh, given release from prison. He has only done half his sentence. And the Brits have said he will have to follow a strict set of rules to serve in the community. Get the hell out of here, man. What they should have done is indicated that he was a lifetime predicate offender, a danger to children until the day he dies. I hearken back to just about towards the end of um, the greatest uh, governor we've ever had in our lifetime, George Pataki. It was his third term. And there was a series of predicate uh, pedophile offenders who were being housed in trailers. And uh, the governor said, no, 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 no. These guys are going to go out. They're going to do it again. I, I don't care. They serve their sentence. They have to be labeled as lifetime offenders. And I am going to assign them to prison in perpetuity. He took a moral stand. Well, legal aid came after George Pataki as governor and sued him personally. He was not covered by qualified immunity. No, no, no. Legal aid went around uh, him and said, no, we're going to sue you personally. And they sued him for millions and millions and millions of dollars on behalf of these children assaulters, some of whom said that they couldn't control their urges and that they would go out and do it again. They went on record. They said, I can't control this demonic urge. I'm going to go out and do it again. And Governor George Pataki fought a good fight. And he stood up and he said, nope, we're going to keep them incarcerated until the ends of time. And luckily, that case failed, although it drained uh, uh, the governor personally in terms of his finances. And in many instances, other governors could have followed sweet uh, suit 
But they looked and they said, God, I'll be I'll be sued personally. I can't afford to do this. And it brings us to this whole idea of pedophiles on a pedestal and where I was last night in the Lower East Side. I used to live there. 131 Avenue A off of St. Mark's, second floor tenement apartment. Uh, This is when they had the uh, riots uh, by the anarchists and the homeless and the hippies uh, back when David Dinkins was mayor. And it's interesting because in the alphabet jungle a few blocks away, this is when it was Dope Fiend City. You could go through the, the blocks there, avenues B, C, and D. And it was horrible. You had abandoned buildings. The P-Dope man would show up. There were lines of folks who would end up buying the dope. A guy would be wearing a fanny pack. He'd have the dope in one pack. He'd take the money in the other, and he'd have his uh, muscle heads making sure that they weren't getting robbed. And some of the base heads would go up into the empty buildings, and they would be leaning out the uh, broken-out windows and just staring into the distance after they had been uh, basing basing that uh, that cocaine. It was wild, crazy days, but even before that, in the LES, now it's called the LES, uh, the Lower East Side then, there was a guy uh, who uh, was named Father Ritter. And I'll never forget, he had a ground floor apartment, and he was uh, attached to the local parish, and he had a stream of young boys coming in and out, and he said that he was rescuing them off the streets, and it made sense. It made sense because there were a lot of... Kids would come into the city. They'd be escaping uh, households around America in which uh, they were being abused or maybe uh, maybe they were gay or maybe they weren't able to uh, fit into the fabric of that community. So they came to New York and they were recruited by pimps, greasy heads, superfly, TNT, black exploitation pimps at the Port Authority. And Father Ritter would be there in all of his clerical garb. And he would rescue a lot of young girls and a lot of young boys. And that was a good thing. And initially, he took them to that apartment in the Lower East Side. And then he had a storefront right on 8th Avenue. It was two blocks from uh, our Guardian Angel headquarters on 46th and 8th across from the old Coco Cabana. And you'd see a stream of young boys going in there and young girls. And we knew that Father Riddle was doing good work because it led to the formation of Covenant House. And yet years later, what did we find out? That this guy was a predicate pedophile, predicate offender. And the New York Post exposed it. At the time, the uh, editor, uh, Jewish guy, his name escapes me momentarily. Oh, he was accused of being anti-Catholic. He was attacked. He was correct. The rest of the world was uh, wrong. And the pedophile on a pedestal, uh, Father Ritter, fled to India where he continued to operate openly as a pedophile. So there are lessons to be learned here. And that is that Gary Glitter is a menace to society and should have been incarcerated in perpetuity. That Father Ritter was a predicate pedophile and should have been incarcerated in perpetuity. How do you protect these young boys and these young girls? How do you protect them? So now I flip the script and I talk about protecting the elderly, all the elderly abuse. We have a perfect case that you probably saw in the news or you may have read about. I think it was mentioned here by Noam Layden, but he probably forgot to mention that, too, because historically I have a connection to this guy. His name is Ray. He runs a candy store. He's an Iranian. He's 90 years old and it's a 24 hour candy store. 
in which they make egg creams. That's right, there are no eggs in egg creams, and right now you couldn't afford eggs to put into egg creams, even if you were a schmuck of putts and thought there were real eggs in an egg cream. Salted rod pretzels. They make little sandwiches. It's a little old-fashioned uh, candy store the way it used to be when we were growing up, and Ray runs it, an Iranian, 90 years old, and he runs the midnight shift, the most dangerous shift in the Lower East Side. And even though there's a lot of activity there on Avenue B, a lot of hipster millennial bars and dives and all kinds of uh, places where you can go and smoke your legal weed or your illegal weed or whatever you want to call it, but the point is the place is jumping. And so there's a lot of activity. So staying open 24 hours, you're going to have a steady stream of customers in. And Ray, on uh, Wednesday morning at 3 o'clock in the morning, was viciously attacked outside of his 24-hour candy store, which is south of St. Mark's and Avenue A. In fact, it's just a block from where I used to live. And uh, I visited him last night with my international director of the Guardian Angels, K.J. Oda, in from uh, Tokyo. Uh, who remembers Ray from years ago. We checked up on him. A nurse was there. She was taking him to Beth Israel because he didn't want to go in. And he had clearly had a broken jaw. You could see the pictures. He has a black eye, a swollen nose, and he had a broken jaw. I could tell. I've had so many broken jaws. I said, Ray, you got to go to the hospital. No, 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 no. I, I got to work my shift. Ray, Ray, you got to go to the hospital. And then finally, the nurse was able to uh, convince him. Hopefully, they'll keep him in there you got to wire up his jaw. I've seen that before, but hopefully maybe not. Anyway, the reason this is important, not only to the fact that you have a senior citizen again in the naked city, this city of ours that has become crime infested, who was savagely attacked. There is a picture of the assailant. No arrests have been made by the nearby Ninth Precinct. And what did Ray and everybody else in the Lower East Side say? There's no police patrols. There's no police patrols. Hey, Eric Adams, swagger man with no plan. Yeah, tell us how safe it is. Tell that to Ray. But interesting, back in April of 1992, I was living in that second floor tenement with Lisa. We were partners in what was Angels in the Morning, 91 and 94. And I was going to get the newspapers from Ray because back then there was no Internet. And I would always come to WABC first to do show prep because Lisa would say, ah, I don't feel right unless I get dolled up, unless I put uh, makeup on. I said, Lisa, this is this is freaking radio. We got to do show prep. Ah, you go ahead. Uh, I'll join you. And that was our basic routine. And I would get the papers from Ray, uh, hail a cab, and go off to WABC, the old WABC at 32nd Street, 17th floor, 2, temp- two Plan Plaza. And then all of a sudden, one morning, as I'm going to Ray's, these three Gabons get out of a car. And they have baseball bats, and they tool me up. They hit me about 32 times. In fact, I could see the actual signature on one of those Louisville sluggers was signed by Joe DiMaggio. I mean, they hit me hard, and I'm flipping and flopping around. Ray's come comes out of his candy store yelling at him, stop, stop. I run across the street. I almost get hit by cars. They're following me. Luckily, David Dinkins and it put up a fence, and it declared a curfew in Tompkins Square Park because of the— uh, because of the anarchists and the rioting, and they had closed the park, I scrambled over the fence, all battered and bruised, fell on the other side, and these guys were screaming and yelling. And Ray said, hey, get, hey, get out of it, get out of it. And they jumped back in the car, popped a donut, started screaming at me. And it was Ray who summoned the police from the 9th Precinct. And I'll never forget, they were looking at me from the other side of the fence because 
they needed somebody to, uh, to open up the gate. Uh, they had to get a parkey, and they looked at me, and they said, oh, you don't look like Superman now, tough guy. Remember, this is before Rudy Giuliani. And I didn't say anything, but I never forgot what Ray did for me. You could literally say that he distracted these three Gavones. Do you want to know their names? Do you want to know their names, right? There's Kaplan, there's Ruggiero, and there's McLaughlin. And this was testified in the trial in which John Getty Jr. was on trial for the uh, attempted uh, murder and my kidnap, which followed in June of 1992 when I got shot five times with hollow point bullets just a block away. So this was all in court. And when I was testifying to this, guess who was sitting in the peanut gallery, eye-fornicating me and mad-dogging me? Stephen Kaplan, Ruggiero, and McLaughlin. And I looked at them like, hey, maybe a few more swings and you would have turned me into a vegetable, right? Ah. To be continued, man, we got to look out for Ray. 90 years old, took a licking, it's going to come back ticking, and it's still going to be working the midnight shift at Ray's candy store there, and I have guardian angels there to protect him since Eric Adams Swagger Man doesn't seem to have the time to help Ray. Spectacular! Now, here's the Sid Wrap Up. Boy! tell you, one of the greatest moments of talk radio I've ever listened to, ever in my lifetime of listening to talk radio, and I started when I was about 14, 15 years old, to the great Bob Grant, king of talk radio, and before that, oh yeah, it was sports talk radio, and it was great, I've been listening to talk radio ever since. But this morning when the boys opened up at 6 o'clock, Lou at the boards, Macedonian Phil, and Justin Ellick with Sid Rosenberg, they went back on a path of nostalgic lore that I could actually almost feel each and everything that they were all sharing with one another. Without a doubt, you got to go to the podcast. you got to listen to 6 to about 6.25, it was one of the best, best pieces of radio that I've heard in a long, long time. It was theater of the mind, but it transported everybody back on the time machine. And even though I didn't spend as much time in Bay Ridge as Sid, remember he was over from Midwood, I was a Canarsie boy, I spent enough time in some of the discos there. But I also went to other places that Sid... Would never go to. So when I came on at 6.40, I pimped off of that opening ride that was the best thing that I've heard in radio in quite some time. You talk about black women in clubs. Now, I must have mentioned 30 clubs in the first segment. I left out one. You all know that Joe Tacopina, who will join me at 8.40 this morning, has been a friend of mine for 42 years. 
That dates back to my days at Poly Prep, where Danny Fagliano, who's father Frank, ran the Fulton Fish Market, dear friend. There's a guy named Gary Hanna, who's an attorney today. Gary's father, Al Hanna, was one of the owners of Pastels in Brooklyn. Now, you, you went to Pastels in Brooklyn, yeah. but, and that was in Bay Ridge, you weren't going to find a no. black woman anywhere no. near. No, no, you saw everybody <laughs> imitating Madonna and Blondie. Right. There ain't no uh, black woman in, the, in Bay Ridge the back per, then. The peroxide queens showed up there, right? And, boy, they were hot to trot. They wanted ludes. Right. You got any ludes? You got any ludes? Right. Uh, no, uh, where I went, Club Zanzibar, Newark. You went from pastels yes. to Club Zanzibar in Newark? Great music, <laughs> R&B. I was, like, uh, I was like the bleach spot in the inkwell there. Feet don't fail me now. I had the polyester waffle weave flame retardant shirt. You know, should have been cotton to absorb all the schwitz. Then I had the bell-bottom pants, and then I had the platform shoes, what we call marshmallow shoes. You really had that whole outfit. Oh, the whole gig. That was the outfit. Yes. That was it. Oh, I was a dance extraordinaire. I would tell young ladies after I danced with them, because, you know, when the slow jams would come on, I'd say, you might be, uh, you might be smart to go for a pregnancy test. <laughs> At the local hospital. They said, what are you talking Just about? Just from dancing. Grinding. No sex at all. Kind of like well, that. You know who says that? Tracy Morgan says that. You would dance with these girls. Grind them. Dressed. Yes. And you still felt like you got them pregnant. Right. But still, I had to look around the room to make sure their supreme cuisine was not there. Or in the club Zanzibar, Newark, the brothers. The brother's like, what this crazy white boy doing in here? Coming in, stealing our sisters. And then I realized there was a certain time. Feet don't fail me now. Time to run. <laughs> time to run for the Port Authority, the train back from Newark, you know, to New York City. Because then it got very dangerous. Right. And, and pastels, the same thing. Supreme Cool Sheets, we don't dance, yeah, man. Yeah. You, you, are you a fairy? That's the way it was. You see, that's the kind of talk radio that engages you. Not like, oh, Biden sucks, Trump's falling off his horse, DeSantis is the future. And as a result of that kind of discussion that Sid engages in with his team in the morning, the best, the best morning radio show in existence. Guess what? I've had a promotion. I've been given a promotion. I think I've decided, though, based upon how good he is to put him on three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and that is Curtis Sliwa. Yeah, and Tough Nuggies, Lou. Tough Nuggies, Mastonian Phil and Justin Ellick. It'll now be three times. It's the Troika, the Trinity, the Trifecta. You're going to have to deal with me. But again, ladies and gentlemen, if you can go back to the podcast from this morning's program, 6 to about 6.20, and then I follow 6.40 to 7. Oh, boy, nostalgic radio, the best talk radio that I've heard in a long time. By the way, as the temperatures are plunging uh, sub-Arctic, don't make the mistake Sid Rosenberg did right before the Christmas vacation. Uh, make sure your pipes don't bust. Do whatever is necessary to do that. And on behalf of Nancy and the love that we have for animals and the animal welfare hour that we do, we're doing a video now. We'll give you more details in upcoming uh, shows. Uh, please take care of our furry little Animal friends, especially those who are either stuck outdoors or choose to live outdoors. For the feral cats, make sure that the, the water's put out there and try to provide some shelter wherever possible. It's going to be cold out there. The hawk is talking.